400 years. It's a long time. 400 years. The writer of Hebrews had this to say at the very beginning of what he said in Hebrews 1. Any minute now. God, after he spoke long ago, 400 years, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. What a tremendous promise that is to us. What a wonderful blessing that is for us. God sent his son to us. His love personified in Jesus Christ. And we, in addition to that, we continue to have his word, which speaks to us fresh and new every day. He speaks to us. And yet, for 400 years, there wasn't anything from God. Imagine that time frame. 400 years ago, more or less, uh, the, the Mayflower was landing at Plymouth Rock. That's 20 generations of people who don't hear from a prophet, who don't hear from God. For a lot of them, I can imagine their thoughts would be maybe there isn't a God. Or if there is a God, maybe he doesn't really even care about me because he doesn't seem to be speaking. Oh yeah, there had been promises of his coming some six or seven hundred years before. And he promised that he was going to come, that he was going to be there. Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, said it this way. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then the glory of the Lord, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's a promise of him coming, but it's been 400 years. And I got to wonder... After 400 years, are there, uh, how many people were really still waiting? Jesus was going to come. God's Messiah, God's promise was going to come. They had been told it's coming. They had been told, if you will, that an alarm was going to sound. But it hadn't. Rick told us we'd have one today. Where is it? Well, it's a little more easier for us, right? Because uh, we know we can be pretty confident there's going to be an alarm sometime today. I don't know when. You don't know when. But there's going to be an alarm. Fortunately, we have a 90-minute window. It isn't as if Jay, that Rick came up here and said, sometime in the next bit of eternity, the alarm's going to go off. And when it does, you better be ready. Imagine if it took years. If we're here two, three, four, five, six years from now, and we're thinking, you remember when Rick said that alarm was going off? I wonder whatever happened. How many of us would still be waiting? How many of us would still be thinking about it? This is the situation we find ourselves in today in the book of Matthew. It's been 400 years since God has spoken to them. In fact, it's been some 30 years between where we were two, three weeks ago in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's a 30-year span right there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3 as we continue in our study of His kingdom coming. 
I encourage you to take notes this morning. Uh, There are a series of questions on the back of the note cards that you have. If you're joining with us online, then uh, welcome. By the way, welcome to any new people that have come since Jackie and I were on a cruise a couple of weeks ago. And on a Sunday morning, we did a church service. I got to preach a message in a bar. There wasn't anybody there on Sunday morning, so we held a church service. And some of those folks said, we're going to come to your church online. And so, hi, if you're there. So far, where have we been? I'll catch you up because it's only a couple of chapters. We began by establishing Jesus' bona fides, his credentials, his right to be called the, the, the son of David, the one who would sit on David's throne, the one who would be the Messiah. That's in chapter one. Then we had the Christmas story that we all know and that we're all going to be celebrating again in just a few weeks. The birth of Jesus Christ. In chapter two, we see the wise men show up a couple of years later in the timeline anyway. Joseph takes his family to Egypt after being warned in a dream. Joseph has a lot of dreams, as we have seen. And the boys, young boys two and under, are massacred there in Bethlehem, after which uh, the family then moves back to Nazareth, so Jesus could be known as the Nazarene. And over the next 25 to 30 years that has happened since chapter, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus has grown up. He becomes a carpenter. Somewhere along the line, we lose Joseph. Outside of that, we don't know a lot of what's going on during that period of time. From the book of Matthew, we don't know any of it because it just happens. The next thing we read is in the first verse of chapter 3, again, 30 years later, and it says this, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. You could say that John is our Rick Wolf, okay? He came to sound the alarm. And some people were ready, but many people weren't. And John today, in sounding that alarm, is going to do so through a number of alarming statements that he is going to make. And he's going to make them in order to get them ready. He's not going to mince words. He's going to be downright offensive at times, as we're going to see this morning. But not only does he want to get them ready, he wants to get us ready because unlike the 400 years of silence that Israel experienced, God is speaking to us today. I hope he is speaking to you. And my prayer is that not only will he speak, but we will listen. And not only will we just listen, but we will actually act. So what's his first statement through John today? It is this, you need to change direction. Let's go again to verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you boil it all down, this is John's message. Repent. That word repent, we often hear, you know, it means to go this way, and then when you repent, you're now going this way. It doesn't really mean that. The biblical word that is used here means to change your mind. It means to change your mind. And in fact, it's, it's sort of the other side of the coin of coming to God. When you come to God, what are you doing? You are turning from your old life. And of course, when we change our mind, what is actually then changing? In Proverbs 23, 7, we read, For as one thinks within himself, so he is. I've used the illustration before of attitude, action, habit. Everything that we do externally begins with a thought. 
And so a true change of mind, repentance, will actually be seen in a change of action, in a change of direction. You're going one way, and because of this alarm, you're now going to go another way. And that's, again, what happens when people turn to Christ. You're going your own way, and then suddenly the alarm sounds, the alarm in the form of you see something that makes you realize, I need to change what I'm doing. I need to stop going this way. I need to go a new direction. And when you realize your wrong direction, that's repentance in your mind. But, of course, it is then followed by your actions because as we think, so we do. And that's what's happening here in the wilderness of Judea. Look at verse 3. For this, meaning John the Baptist, is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said 700 years ago, quote, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And believe it or not, this was not, it was unusual looking, but it was not unheard of because this would be considered sort of a a uniform, if you will, of a prophet. And it had been hundreds of years since they had seen or heard from a prophet. And so John is playing the part, not playing the part, he is the part. This is who John is. And his alarm, as we see here, is having an impact on the people. Verse 5, and at that time Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And we're going to see in a minute that John's baptism is, as he has stated, a baptism of repentance. It's, a, it's, it's because the people are saying, they're listening to what John is saying as he's sharing the word of God with them. And they're saying to themselves, you're right, I am going the wrong way. I do need to change my direction. And they confessed that. And as they confessed that, their baptism then became a visible symbol of the change. The word baptize, by the way, in, the, in scripture, bapto or baptismo, means to dunk. <laughs> I have a guy in the church here, a, a, a Greek and Hebrew professor, and I used to say, we're going to have baptisms, and he would kind of say to me, well, are you going to bring them up as well? Because <laughs> the baptism part is just the going down part, but yeah, so we, all, we all understand that. We're going to, when, if you're going to get baptized here, you're going to be brought back up, trust me, or you're going to meet Jesus a lot quicker than you thought. <laughs> but baptism means to, to dunk, it, and it's, it's a symbol uh, of the fact that you have made this dramatic change in your life. They were leaving their old life behind. They're vowing to go this new direction in life. And this baptism confirmed that. It's, it's a symbol. It signified cleansing in their life. Alarms do that for us, don't they? We might be, you, you might be comfortable right now. You might say, this is nice. I'm, I'm hearing a good message. I'm being encouraged by the word of God. Sort of comfortable here. I got my, my spot staked out. This is where I like to sit. <laughs> and then suddenly, bop, bop, whatever it's going to do. I forget what it sounds like. It's been years. <laughs> but that alarm is going to go off. And then guess what? You're moving. Hopefully, you're going to move willingly. If not, there are some members that are going to come by and help you. 
to move, encourage you, motivate you to move from where you are. In the same way, when God sounds the alarm, obviously through his word, and when you realize there needs to be a change in my life, I would hope as well that you would do it willingly and that you would do it immediately. You see, this, this whole exercise today is a picture of what we're seeing in God's word. And, and let's be real. Most people don't listen to God's word. Most people say they listen to God's word or they pretend they listen to God's word. But what did Jesus say? In Matthew 7, we'll see in a few weeks, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. And consequently, he also says the way is narrow and the road is small and, and few are those that... There are far more people that are not going to listen to the alarms that are being uh, broadcast today than those who are listening. It's true today. It was true in that day. There on the banks of the Jordan River. But there was also a second alarm. Not only are we to change direction, but also we see next, uh, uh, John is saying to us, you better be serious about this. As we see here, many of them there that day were not serious. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is not really the way to win friends and influence people. But uh, he does provoke a response. Verse 8, therefore, he's still talking to them, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And do not assume that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and being thrown into the fire. It's ironic <laughs> that people often think that they're not good enough for God, and yet throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, the harshest criticisms that are leveled at people by Jesus, or in this case, John the Baptist, are at those people who do think they're good enough for God. In fact, they think they're better than anybody for God. They've got an in with God by virtue of who they are and what they do. And in this case... Along with this crowds of, of sinners, as they call them, the great unwashed, uh, shows up these religious leaders known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there's a lot of ways you can describe them. I would encourage you this week, just do a, a little study on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Get a sense for who these guys were. The Pharisees were the legalists. They were the strict followers of the law and the tradition of which they created a whole bunch. They had all these rules and they followed the rules. They really were very, very religious. I would dare say that probably most of us in this room couldn't hold a candle to the religious activities of the Pharisees. On the other hand, you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were also... Uh, the, the, I, hear, I see lights flashing at me now. <laughs> and I guess that's why we're doing a drill. <laughs> so, wah, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I think we're mostly back. 
If you didn't make it, then let the let squat know, let the security team know, so that uh, they can get you back in here. <laughs> Think about it. So we left off where John the Baptist is. Uh, making a connection with these religious leaders, you could say. This brood of vipers, as he puts it. And between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you sort of had, you know, uh, two very different ways of approaching God. The Pharisees were, were uh, very much the, the religious legalists. The Sadducees were quite a, a bit more... Uh, less legalistic, okay? Uh, they also did not like things, uh, they, they didn't really accept the supernatural. In fact, my pastor once told me the way you can tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees apart is over the resurrection. The, uh, the, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, so they were fair, you see? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see? <laughs> I don't know, it worked. He told me that probably 40 years ago. I'm still, I'm still quoting it. But about the only thing they would really agree upon is their hate for Jesus, as we're going to see as we go through the book of, of Matthew. And John is telling all of these people that they need to change, but these guys, they didn't believe they needed to change. After all, we are children of Abraham. We are the chosen people. We have an inn. We have an e-ticket, if you remember the e-tickets from Disneyland. But what they need to understand is that's not what makes them special. If they're not going to heed the alarm, if they're not going to get serious, then what, is, uh, what does John say to them? It says, God can raise up new followers from these rocks. That's how important you are. That's how, uh, that, that, that's how indispensable you are. God can raise up new believers. God can raise up a new remnant from the rocks if necessary. And of course... We know he's increasingly going to be talking about the outsiders, i.e. the Gentiles, which is probably most of us here today. And so many were not really serious about coming to Christ because there was no need to come to Christ. There's no need. They were already good enough. Does that sound familiar? I mean, if you ask most people, do you feel like you're good enough to go to heaven? Most people that don't know Christ, most of them will say, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. What does he tell them? And what does he tell all of us to do? He says here in verse 8, Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Remember, repentance is a state of mind. It's not a work, but, it, but a true repentance will produce actions. It will produce fruit. And the fruit of, that is consistent with true repentance is for argument, let's say the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things are the things I'm going to see in my life. There's going to be a visible change because of a true repentance. That's the fruit consistent with repentance. And look what he says here. This kind of fruit, if it's not being produced then there's a, a pretty hefty uh, uh, thing that occurs to you. Verse 10, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and being thrown in the fire. If there's no fruit, then there's really no reason for a tree. If you're a fruit farmer, I remember my, in the backyard at our house, we had all kinds of fruit trees. And there were a couple of them that weren't producing any fruit. Guess what happened to those trees? They're out of there. We want fruit trees. We're going to bring fruit. We're going to bring fruit trees in that are going to give us fruit. And guys, this is a very serious consequence. 
because that's what he's talking about. If you don't produce fruit, I'm going to cut you down. Um, if you don't get serious about your faith, when the alarm is sounding, you need to take it seriously. Do you respond seriously? But John has one more alarming statement for us this morning. In addition to changing direction, in addition to being serious about our relationship with him, John wants us to know what the religious leaders missed. In all of their talk, of how good they are and how they are owed this because of their lineage, because of any other reason other than Jesus Christ. We, he says to us, we are not worthy, Jesus is. You see, unlike what the religious leaders thought about themselves, or it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about my abilities, it's not about my disabilities, or my skills, or my lack of skills. None of that makes me worthy or unworthy. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus alone. And it's his worthiness that counts. It's about what Jesus has already done for us, something we could never do for ourselves. Look at verse 11. As for me, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here John explains some different aspects of baptism and in some cases even different baptisms. He says my baptism is a baptism of repentance, a baptism of cleansing, a baptism of turning from sin. And when you get serious about that and you want to demonstrate that to others, you, you get baptized. I was reading in fact just this morning that in many Muslim countries, uh, you can become a Christian and not have too much persecution until you get baptized. And the point at which you get baptized, they accept that, okay, now you are dead serious. We might as well make you dead and, you know, and complete the process. And so baptism is a very serious statement about what's going on inside of you. As my pastor used to say, an outward expression of an inward possession or an inward action. So John's baptism was this baptism for cleansing, for repentance. Repentance. Jesus, on the other hand, he says here, this, he was going to baptize them for, first, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing you in the Holy Spirit means becoming saved. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, we read this from the Apostle Paul. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. When we become a Christian, we are then baptized. We, are, we identify, we are immersed into the Holy Spirit. And then the third aspect, Jesus' baptism would also be a baptism of fire. This speaks of refinement, of purifying. It also speaks of a judgment that one day we're all going to go through. And in the context, I think that's where he's going because that's exactly what he talks about next as he speaks of a farmer on his threshing floor. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What he's picturing 
here is basically threshing the wheat. And the way they would do that, and continue to this day, is you take a, a, a fork full of wheat and you throw it up in the air and the wheat comes back down and the chaff blows away or it separates. And as you do that, you get pure wheat and then the chaff is the part that you don't want. And what does he say happens here? The, the, the wheat is going to be the good part that you keep and the chaff is what you're going to take to, to get rid of. The wheat are, if you will, the saved and the chaff, the useless part, are those who reject Christ. And notice, guys, there is no middle ground here. You are saved or you're not saved. You are, you are a follower of Christ. Some people would say, well, I'm, I'm not either one of those. I'm just thinking about it. I'm somewhere in the middle. There is no somewhere in the middle. You are either a follower of Jesus Christ. You've made that step. You've taken that, that chance, that opportunity to say yes to his gift of eternal life or you are outside of the family. You're chaff, good, ready, and prepared for the fire. John 3, 16, we love to quote that, but it's followed by verses 17 and 18. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And people will often say, well, how could a loving God, if God really loved the world, how could he, how could he condemn some people to hell? How could he send some people uh, to, to a, a place of eternal uh, damnation? Well, he didn't, and that's what we see next. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And then he expounds on that. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. In computer language, being unsaved is the default position. That's where we start. God doesn't send anyone to hell. You're already on your way there. He's given us the opportunity to avoid that fate through sending his son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, I have to wonder, where, what are you today? Are you wheat? Are you chaff? If, and if you're not for Jesus, then you are against him. John the Baptist here is fulfilling a couple of different roles. He is, almost, he is known as the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's also one of the first New Testament prophets, if you will. And I began this morning by sharing with you from Hebrews chapter 1, and, in verse, and we've, what we've seen here is verse 1 is concluded. Verse 1 said, verse 1 says... <laughs> That God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That's what he has already done. And now we are beginning to see the beginning now of verse 2. In these last days, which began 2,000 years ago and have continued right up to now, has spoken, he has spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Guys, everything changes from this point on. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized him by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have the need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. John knew exactly who Jesus was. John knew that Jesus is the one that he was preparing the way for. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And John knew he's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And seeing him, John sees his own need for him, for Jesus' power. 
That's what happens when you meet Jesus. You see your own self. John saw himself in stark relief. I wonder what else John saw. I mean, you may or may not know. We wouldn't know from the book of Matthew, but we do know outside of Matthew that, uh, that Jesus and John were actually cousins. Maybe they knew each other. I think they did, because later on, as we're going to see in chapter 11, John begins to actually have some doubts. Are you really the Messiah? Maybe hearkening back to, you're the cousin that I, that I grew up with. But if he had any doubts at this point, he puts them aside. Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to John, Allow it at this time, for in this way it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. In other words, John the Baptist baptized him. What does it mean when he says here to fulfill all righteousness? Well, there's an entire sermon on that one, and we don't have time today. But what we essentially have Christ doing here, you know, this could be a big question. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Well, he's being baptized because he is identifying with us. He is God for sure, and, doesn't, uh, and yet he is also man. And in this baptism, he is identifying with us. He is giving us an, of an example of the importance of water baptism. I have people that, that say, well, if baptism doesn't save you, and it doesn't, not water baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit is what's necessary. If it doesn't save you, then why do it? This is one of the reasons. Because Jesus did it, he demonstrates the importance of it. It's a reminder to us the baptism is a picture. It's not, it's not getting us saved, this water baptism, because obviously Jesus is not getting saved here. And he's also, in a sense, picturing his own coming and his own death and his own resurrection. And in case there was any question about who Jesus is, there is a declaration here which is amazing. It's a declaration of just who Jesus is. And the declaration comes from none other than God himself. Look at verse 16. After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The doctrine of the Trinity is a controversial doctrine for some people. I personally have never had any problem with it. Not that I understand it, because I don't. How can one be three and three be one? But I accept it. And why do I accept it? This is one of the main places right here. We see all three members of the Trinity all here at the same time. God the Son coming up from the water. God the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. And God the Father speaking from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We've experienced some alarms this morning. Well, some flashing lights and some... <laughs> sounded, sounded like my, uh, the alarm that wakes me up every morning. Beep, beep, beep out there. And I hope and pray, though, that you have heard them. And I'm not just talking about the beeping or the lights or the alarms from the, from the people ushering you out of the room. I'm talking about the alarms here in the Word of God. However God is speaking to you, guys, that is an alarm. Take it that way. Because God doesn't speak for no reason. If he's sharing something with you, he means for you to act upon it. Let me give you a couple of takeaways, and I think they're obvious when I look at this passage. Number one, I ask myself, what change of direction do I need to make in my life? 
Obviously, God is speaking to us here today. He's spoken to me as I've been preparing this throughout the week. And there's been a few things where I've said, Lord, you know what? You're right. I need to repent of that behavior. I need to repent of that action or that way of, of behaving towards somebody. I need to change my direction. And I realize that, and the realization causes an action in my life. What actions in your life need to be taken this morning? Secondly, am I seriously alarmed today? Or is this just another day? It's pretty cool that we had a, an emergency drill because that makes this day not just another day. It's a day when we're all going to get up and walk outside and, 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 and do some stuff out there and then come on back in. But guys, that is every day. That is every moment you come to the Word of God. That is every moment that you are hearing from Him. Hopefully, we are serious about it. Not like the Pharisees, the fairs, you see, or the sads, you see. It, not like those guys who thought, well, I don't need this. I'm, I'm okay today, Pastor. I, no, nothing in there is, is, is getting on me today. Well, there's going to be something. There's something in here, unless you're perfect. And if so, I want to talk to you after church. And number three, do I need to be baptized? Now, of course, we can talk about the water baptism. Again, Jesus has uh, given us an example of that. In fact, we're going to have a baptismal service at the end of next month on the 27th. Uh, if you have not been baptized, you need to ask yourself that question. You know, why not? Uh, people say, uh, you know, am I getting saved? No, you're not getting saved. Then why should I get baptized? Because Jesus said so. And by becoming a Christian, you're now saying, I turn my uh, life over to him. And the first thing he asks you to do is get baptized. And it seems like a lot of us, because I was one, when I got saved, I'm like, you mean I got to go up and get wet in front of everybody? You know? And it's like the first thing he asks us to do, we're like, well, that seems a little uncomfortable. Well, get ready. There's going to be a lot more uncomfortable things than that in the life of a Christian. The second baptism, though, well, not the second, the, the, another baptism is the baptism of the Spirit. And that's coming to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And do you need that baptism today? When you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to his offer of salvation, what happens is the Holy Spirit enters your life forever. He's never glowing. That's, that's known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And do you need that this morning? Do you recognize, as we have seen, that all have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death and that you're under those wages? You owe that price. But Jesus Christ came to this world, and as we have seen, he lived a perfect, sinless life, did not incur that debt. Nevertheless, he went to the cross and he died, but not for his sins, for our sins. The sins of the entire world, as John 3.16 says. And it's not enough just to know that. You have to accept that. You have to make that gift your own. We're going to be giving gifts in the next couple of months. And how tragic would it be if I gave my daughter, Wendy, a car? You know, she would love that, right? Well, how tragic would it be if I gave her this car? It's a Kia Soul, right? That's what you want. Yeah. <laughs> And I give her the keys, and a month later, it's still sitting out there, cobwebs down to the floor and dirt all over it. And, and, and I say, Wendy, what, what about your car? Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll get to it. Does she have the car? No, it's not hers. 
And it's the same with Jesus Christ. God loved the whole world. He gave this tremendous gift, but it is not yours personally until you accept it and make it your own and open the gift. And Scripture says you do that by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. What's stopping you from doing that this morning right where you sit? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the alarms that you give us in your word. I thank you, Father, that I can get so complacent in my life. Things just go on the way they always go. And yet, Lord, they're not going on the way they always go. I am getting worse if I am not following you, if I am not listening to you, if I'm not actively seeking to, to live my life in accordance with what you have shown me in your word and through your alarms. And so I thank you for those times when, Lord, you say to me, Willie, you brood of vipers. <laughs> you wake me up. You burn the, the callous that, are off, that, that, that have developed in my life. And I thank you for that. And I pray especially right now, Lord, for those here this morning that have never taken that step and said yes to your gift of salvation that you, that your son Jesus Christ bought with his life on the cross. And I pray that this morning they would recognize that all they need to do is say, Lord Jesus, and they need to say it and mean it, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Change me. Make me into the person that you want me to be. I give my life to you, Lord, and whatever you say, beginning with baptism, I'm going to do it. Lord, I pray that there is no one in this room that is holding back from taking that step because all of eternity is dependent upon it. All of your eternity and my eternity is dependent upon that declaration. And Father, we thank you for these gifts. We thank you for your word to us today. Again, Lord, I thank you for the alarms and pray that we would heed them, listen to them, and act appropriately, even as we have done so in the parking lot this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.